Right now, a lot of people out there are talking about childhood trauma and how it affects people. But the one thing that's a core symptom and is almost never talked about, and I think this is the most important thing to know about complex PTSD or childhood PTSD, is dysregulation. And to me, all the other information is just not even usable unless you understand what neurological dysregulation is and how to get re-regulated. Whether you struggle to connect with people or you get limerent or you go for unavailable people or you have addictions or you get emotionally dysregulated, all the things we talk about here, it's all normal for CPTSD, but the place to begin your healing is with neurological dysregulation. And this is an almost universal symptom that underlies all other symptoms that we get. Once you know what it is and when it's happening, you can start healing it. When you're more regulated, you can begin healing the other stuff, the emotions, the memories, the patterns, the relationship problems. But all of this depends on your nervous system having a basic level of regulation. And when you experience trauma, your basic level of regulation tends to be very disrupted. That's the thing that you probably were never told and never got help with. So today I'm sharing my basic video on how to tell if you're dysregulated. People who had a rough childhood often go through life feeling or knowing that they're different than most people. Everyone knows that early exposure to violence and addiction and abuse or neglect can have a lifelong effect on mental health and behavior. It's common sense, right? Researchers understood these effects to be mostly psychological or learned from dysfunctional parents. And while that's partly true, we now know the primary injury is also, sometimes mostly, neurological. So early trauma dysregulates the brain and nervous system. And that potentially can trigger a whole range of problems from obesity to ADHD, to heart disease, to sex addiction. But for people with childhood PTSD, just being dysregulated is a problem that makes ordinary things in life ridiculously hard. Things like going on a date, uh, spending time alone, expressing an opinion, or just buying a pair of shoes can set off dysregulation. So if you could see an MRI image of the brain in this dysregulated state, you'd see the front left cortex go dim and inactive, hampering the ability to reason and pay attention. And you'd see the right front cortex flaring, just with a flood of emotions, suppressed reasoning, overreactive emotions. Is this familiar? It's not all in your mind, it turns out. It's in your brain. So there's this change of activity. Brain waves are irregular. Breathing and your heart rate, they become ragged and out of sync. They should be going together. Every time you inhale, your heart rate goes up slightly. You exhale, it goes down slightly. But when you're dysregulated, this is called heart rate variability. It's, it's not going together and your body feels it. There might be numbness in your hands or your mouth or your face. It can be hard to find words or complete tasks that you're in the middle of or to just pay attention. Personally, I get clumsy when I'm dysregulated and I trip on curbs and I drop things. Once I, I broke four different dishes while doing the dishes, just one time doing the dishes, I just kept dropping things. My handwriting changes. For a lot of us, we say things when we're dysregulated that we don't mean and we do things that we don't even want to do. Or 
sometimes some of us grow silent and we withdraw when we're dysregulated or we may feel desperate and act impulsively or fly into a rage or lash out. So after an outburst like that, you might have experienced this. Sometimes there's no emotion, like emotions go way up and then they go down and we behave coldly to the people we've just hurt. And my friend told me once that when I'm upset, I have a blank expression on my face and my voice gets really flat. And so it's impossible for other people to tell from the outside what I'm feeling. What it looks like when I do that, it looks like I don't care. And I remember once a teacher telling me that my, my son, when he was, a, he was in preschool, that he had been really naughty that day. And I was mortified and I was freaked out and worried I was parenting wrong. And she said, I'm telling you this and you obviously don't even care. So I finally have some insight about why people have ever read me that way or, or thought that I'm an uncaring person. I, I'm not, I care very much. Do, do you have this? It is so hard when dysregulation is changing the way you interpret reality and the way you express yourself. But here's the thing, these reactions are not happening because I'm bad or anybody is necessarily bad or selfish or weak. Um, okay, well, there's a little of that sometimes, of course, right? But that would be true of anybody. These reactions are happening or they're made worse because the brain is dysregulated. Nobody knew this before, not doctors, not therapists, not preschool teachers, nobody knew, but now we know. One way that I've described the feeling of dysregulation to people who have never really experienced it is that it's like wearing a pair of headphones with heavy metal music just like blasting in your ears and you're wearing somebody else's glasses that make everything else blurry and you're wearing a giant pair of shoes like a foot too long for your feet like clown shoes and a mop is on your head and all the dirty strings are slapping you in the face and no one can see this and they think you're normal and you have to pretend that you feel fine and that you can hear everything that's being said and that you understand and that you're in the conversation when really you feel disconnected and uncomfortable and frustrated, but you have to try to guess at what connected people would say. You have to think about how to hold your face so it looks appropriate to whatever the other person is saying. And you can't hear what they're saying because the noise in your head, the perceived noise of all that stress is you're experiencing it like flooding, like loud. Dysregulation gets activated when you're confronted with stressors and crises. And remember, it can suppress your ability to reason while it also amps up your emotions. So you see how this explains so much why those of us with childhood PTSD appear to keep making the same bad choices over and over, even when we say we're never gonna do it again, and even when we mean we're never gonna do it again, but then you look down and there you are, you're doing it again. So I'm here to tell you, you can break this cycle. You really are capable of making good choices and good changes, but it would really help if you could learn to re-regulate. So how do you know when dysregulation is happening? Let's start with the regulated state and what it feels like. When you're calm, brain activity is even and it's driving body responses and emotions in an even and predictable way. But then when strong emotions trigger dysregulation, our thinking changes. We can go into reactivity. We might withdraw and get silent or get confused and just say things or freak out or do something impulsive. And it's hard to perceive accurately what's going on in those moments like, like what just happened? What's the actual problem? Is it me? Is it the other person? What am I supposed to say? In a dysregulated state, we can't tell if a person is safe or dangerous. And we can't tell 
whether our words and actions are appropriate to the situation. And sometimes we say things and do things that are not appropriate and we later regret terribly. The trick to noticing dysregulation is to recognize the signs and they might be a little different in different people. Here are some clues. You feel spaced out. You're at a loss for words. You can't remember where you are. Has that ever happened? Uh, you feel scattered. You're trying to do a lot of things at once, but you're finishing nothing. You feel hurried and overwhelmed. You're tripping over things, dropping things, losing things, getting clumsy. Or your voice and facial expressions are flat. Or you're in a rage. Or you feel a huge urgency to express what's bothering you. You just feel like it has to be right now. Or you can't feel parts of your body, your hands, your face, your mouth, your nose, your feet. And dysregulation often begins with an emotional flood. You get very upset or scared from something that's said or something that happens. But sometimes the trigger, it's like nothing you notice. You can wake up dysregulated, in fact. That's something called an emotional flashback. So that's what it's like to be dysregulated. I've put a quiz in the description section. It's called the Dysregulation Self-Assessment Quiz. You can check it out, see if you've experienced some of the most common signs of dysregulation. But right now, the most important question is, what can you do? Number one, first, notice that you are dysregulated. If you can do this one thing, you can control your negative impulses and give yourself the time and space to re-regulate before you begin saying anything or doing anything that could be destructive. Are you flooded with emotion? Are you going numb? Say to yourself, okay, I'm getting dysregulated. Number two, be safe. This is not a good time to drive a car. Seriously, if it's happening, pull over and take your time. Don't go running into a crosswalk. Don't try to use a table saw. Give all your focus to getting yourself into a physically safe place where you can pause and get re-regulated, all right? Three, if you're threatened with violence, some of this won't apply. So just return all your focus to getting yourself into a physically safe place, whatever it takes. Four, if what triggered you was an argument, instead of escalating the fight, you can use gentle words to stop the interaction, at least temporarily, like, I wanna continue this conversation, but I need to take a breather to calm down. Or if you don't wanna tell the other person that you're triggered, tell them you need a bathroom break. Or if you're on the phone, say you have a call on the other line. Five, when you need to step back from a situation, you don't have to get into a big discussion about it because remember, talking about it can actually make dysregulation worse. So just find a way to put the conversation on pause. Six, then buy some time. Separate from the other person if you can. Go to a room by yourself, even if it's the bathroom. No one has to know what you're doing. If it feels urgent to express this anger and rage you're feeling, take an even longer break before you try to resolve anything. Number seven, here's a quick technique. Stamp your feet on the floor. You would be amazed how helpful it is to bring yourself back into present time in your body. And as you stamp each foot, you can say quietly to yourself, right, left, right, left. And this helps your brain recalibrate and re-regulate. Um, eight, you can also take 10 deep breaths, focusing particularly on the out breath. Nine, another measure you can take that no one knows you're doing is you can press your tongue to the back of your teeth. Mm. You could just sit in a meeting like that mm, and you're giving yourself a sensation that's helping you come back to your body. Number 10, you can sit down and feel the weight of your butt in the chair. And this is one more way to get back inside your body. 11, sometimes what you need 
is to eat something. And when you're stressed, you, if you're like me, you're gonna crave carbs and sugar. But it's usually something more balanced um, that you need to get grounded again. Carbs are often a quick fix that it's, um, it's common for us to reach for when we're feeling dysregulated. And you get an immediate little kind of warmth and comfort out of it, but then unfortunately it leads to more dysregulation. So a more balanced um, meal that has protein in it will also help you kind of come back and get grounded and stay regulated. If you need some comfort, number 12, you can wash your hands and feel the water and the soap on your hands. Warm water is particularly calming. But also, you can expose yourself to cold water, like jump in a cold shower to get a quick snap, a reset to your nervous system, and it can help you bring you out of that kind of fog and trance-like feeling of, I'm so angry, I'm so upset, I have to say something. It kind of snaps you out of it. Um, you could also get a good squeezing hug, and hugs can really help to re-regulate your brain. If you don't have anyone around to give you that hug, you can try pressing your back into a corner and wrap your arms around yourself so that you can feel pressure all around your torso. We are wired to calm down when we're hugged, so that's handy. And that's it. You now have a whole bunch of things you can do when you notice you're dysregulated. And I've written them down in a downloadable PDF that you can access in the links below too. I go deeper into the science of dysregulation in my courses and you can also check those out below. Now some people ask, is medication helpful for treating dysregulation? Some researchers say yes, some say no, but given that we now know that the underlying problem with a lot of childhood PTSD symptoms, it's not a chemical imbalance per se, that's corrected by the introduction of more chemicals, but rather it's, it's brain dysregulation. There's evidence that some medications can actually do more harm than good, in fact. And one of the reasons might be that they interfere with our natural ability to re-regulate after a period of dysregulation. And this would be true also for you know, recreational drugs. They can interfere with re-regulation. So think about it. Everybody gets dysregulated sometimes, and everyone eventually re-regulates. So with CPTSD, we just tend to get dysregulated more often and for longer periods of time. So the goal is to learn to re-regulate as soon as we notice it and to stay regulated more of the time. That is life-changing. So that's the first part of the solution. The second part then, with your nice, fresh, regulated mind, is to work on the behaviors and circumstances that have flowed out of you living your life dysregulated for so many years. The childhood trauma happened and we definitely were affected, but this is the stuff that holds us back now. So move your focus onto the life problems that are holding you back now, the behaviors, the reactions you have. Focus right now what you're doing to make a happy life, to become your real self, because it's time. The past cannot touch you now. It's time to be your real self, as funky as you are, as beautiful and miraculous as you are, you were made to be something much more than someone who just struggles with symptoms. If you can master re-regulation, you can then have all this space in your life and all this possibility. You can meet people, you can try things, you can quit things. You can make a positive difference in the world and that's where happiness comes from. These all become choices when you learn to re-regulate. So I got really emotionally trashed the other day. It was horrible. I had this bad yelling conversation with a vendor who I hired to perform some professional services for my company. And I got completely dysregulated over it. So this is now like seven days ago. And you've heard me talk about productivity crashes and how you, know, you could lose 
three days of work over something upsetting you. Well, it's been a week for me and I feel like I should still be over it right now, but I'm only now climbing out of my reaction to my horrible day because I really do have CPTSD and I also have some healing. So I wanna tell you what I've been doing to climb back out of deep dysregulation and turn my horrible day into now finally a good day. It's a series of actions I take when I get really overwhelmed, which happens, so that I can get back to feeling alert and peaceful and focused and friendly. <laughs> Gotta be friendly. So that's really important. Feeling irritable isn't gonna work in the job that I do as crappy childhood fairy. I need to be in a pretty good place to turn on the camera and make these videos or do group coaching calls. A lot of the stuff I do, like it's really interactive. So I need to be in a good place. Getting dysregulated will cost me the ability to do what I love and to do this job. So it's really important for me to stay regulated. So I'm gonna to try to resist getting into the story of what happened. Like it's very tempting to tell you all the dirty details, but getting into the story is one of the things that, that dysregulates me. So just to give you a sense, I paid a lot of money I didn't get what I expected and I felt ripped off and I felt like I was getting gaslighted about what was promised versus what was given when I, you know, kind of confronted the situation. So I think I could have pu pulled away easier sooner, but there was this pretty good chunk of money involved and I couldn't get it back. So I felt like I had to keep pushing to work it out. And I, I saw this coming for several months, like stuff was bothering me. The problems were beginning to show up, but you know, I told myself, it'll get better. It'll, it's probably just me. I'm just being paranoid, blah, blah, blah. Sometimes I really do make a mountain out of a molehill. So I do have to watch for that. It wasn't crazy to try to check that suspicion that I was being manipulated, right? Not crazy to check it, but I would have been okay if I had found out like, no, no, I was just overreacting. Well, I was. Whenever I questioned what was happening, the vendor would say a whole bunch of like words, 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 and it would have a big put down in it. And um, they would say, oh, you're just a complainer. Um, you know, no one else has ever found fault with my work and you know, stuff like that, that like when you think about it, it couldn't really be true. So I would just feel awful. I would just feel like really small every time we tried to talk about uh, the project and problems that were happening in it and try to resolve them like in good faith. So I hung in there and basically until I kind of blew, I just blew. So that right there, raising my voice at someone never feels good. And yes, everything was dodgy and yes, they were putting me down and yes, they were kind of BSing me about my concerns and that's a bad feeling. But yelling at someone is even worse for me. I mean, I'm not, if, if I were like in a situation where I was getting mugged or something, yes, I'd yell, but just like trying to transact business or have a cooperative, you know, conversation with somebody, if I'm raising my voice, I'm basically losing control of my self-regulation. So if anything is going to push me into a dysregulated three day or more productivity crash, it's being ashamed of how I acted. And that's what happened. So this is what I do when I'm in that dysregulation ditch like that. And it works. It really helps to get that horrible pain and dread out of my mind and to start feeling like I'm here, I'm good, and I'm gonna keep going. So number one, 
I talked about it. I talked for like 10 minutes and my husband will, will probably tell you that I talked for much longer than that and he might be right. It felt like 10 minutes to me. I went and found him after I got off this terrible phone call. He was like looking really stressed. His eyes were really big. He had overheard my side of the conversation and he was really worried like what was going on, what were going to be the consequences of what he could tell was a total like breakdown of the professional relationship. So I filled up with fear that he was going to think that I'm the problem. He wouldn't back me up. He wouldn't believe me. And of course, I felt like I had to explain, you know, my side of the story. But here's the thing. He's like most people and someone, you know, ranting about something they're angry about is really uncomfortable. And I know that about him. And I was able to finally get out of the story and just feel the hurt and anger and shame that I was feeling. And then I did the second thing. It wasn't planned, but I just started to cry. And there was a time in my life when I used to cry every day, but now it's kind of rare for me to have a big cry. And I got to say, it feels so good. <laughs> I just stopped talking about it. And I sat with my husband and he hung out with me for a while while I just cried and I couldn't stop. I'd stop and then I'd start again. And I was just sobbing. It was just like there was so much built up. And he was saying, you know, nice things like, it'll be okay, you'll figure this out. We can just let it go and put all this behind us. And he didn't at all jump on the bandwagon of, you know, venting with me like, yeah, because I was like, and then this happened and then this happened. He didn't jump on. He just was like attending to my emotional state. That's pretty genius of him. It helped me to come back down because of my CPTSD. When I feel that bad, I need to shift gears. I, it doesn't feel good for me. You know, I'll just, I'll kind of like amp myself up if I'm like really upset about something. So this is the third thing. I stopped venting. I stopped talking about it. In, even though when you're doing it, it feels like it's helping. It feels like, you know, it's helping and I, it'll help all the way if I could just like keep talking, but that's not really how it works for me. And you might feel the same way. It just ratchets up the negative emotions. Ta some talking is necessary, but like to go on and on, mm -mm, not good. And I know that flies in the face of a lot of what, you know, you were taught, what I was taught, but talking is not the only way to turn around a terrible experience or to, you know, stop feeling so bad about it. Talking is usually part of it, but when you're quiet, this whole new depth of feeling can happen when you get off that like spinning wheel of the story, the story, what happened, what they did, what they did. And then I did this and then they did that. The story is mesmerizing. It builds. And when you switch gears out of the talking, it can give you that pause that lets you come back into your body, you know, back into the present moment, back into calm or calmer. And it's a lot easier on other people when you're in a calm, kind of sad or angry state than when you're, you know, in a very intense, like your voice is shrill, it's up there, you're loud, and you're trying to escape the feeling with a lot of, you know, noise and fire, right? So just bring it down by not talking about it, just being with it for a minute. You can try that. The fourth thing was I had some tea and some food. And basically anytime someone yells at me, I'm going to get dissociated for a little bit, you know, really out of myself. And I'm definitely not going to get any creative or like, you know, high intellectual work done when I'm in that state. I need to come back down first. So I might as well just like accept like this is where we are, stop the project underway and and have some tea and if nothing else just like the tactile experience of tea holding the cup look what i have 
the crappy childhood fairy cup. I can have that and it's, you know, that's actually warm in here. I have tea in here. And you have this um, sensation of the tea and it brings you back out of the bad dream that you're sort of projecting into and back into your body, back into real time. And you know, many of you have heard me say, you're never really out of your body. It's a, it's a metaphor for being kind of dissociated, just not present, not able to feel yourself. So that's what everything feels like for me when I'm really dysregulated anyway. The fifth thing is I write and I write my fears and resentments. I teach that in my daily practice course that I'm always talking about, forgive me, but I just have to. This is the main technique that I use, you know, to be okay every day and to re-regulate to basically, you know, over 28 years, I've taught myself to sort of get regulated and stay regulated. I still get dysregulated, but I know how to come back pretty quick. So it's a really nice practice to have. I've taught it to now hundreds of thousands of people. If you want to learn it, it's always down in the description section. It's on the free tools page of my website. And I think it's a standalone link down in the description section. So it's a specific technique to get the fearful and resentful thoughts out of your head and onto paper so that you can release them. There's so many levels that it's helpful on. For one thing, you're expressing yourself, but writing is tactile. And it's a way that you can express those emotions without re-traumatizing yourself by verbal venting. That's not always what you need. For a lot of traumatized people, talking about hard things is really triggering. It will re-trigger the trauma. But we do need to express ourselves. And if I want to, I can always read what I wrote or talk to a friend who I trust who also does these techniques. I can do that later. But in the moment, just writing starts to let that like toxic air just out of my mind. And when you can put fear and resentment out of your head onto paper, you can give your mind a little vacation. <laughs> and these negative feelings, they can't control you like that when you're ventilated like that. <laughs> and they otherwise would have. I've spent a lot of my life before I learned these techniques just throttled by my negative, my fearful, my resentful thoughts. So that's what resentment's like. Your mind is locked. So the next thing I do, and I never feel like it when I'm upset, but I go outside. I move around a little bit. I take a walk. Um, I pull some weeds. If it's daytime, getting out into sunlight really helps come back into present time. I walk. I don't talk or I don't listen to anything when I'm on a sort of like, you know, therapeutic re-regulating walk. I look at the plants. I look at the houses. I look at the cars. I smell the air and no matter what my mind is thinking, my nervous system is just straightening itself out. It's just kind of aligning with reality out there and that feels good. Our nervous systems love to use the senses to see what time of day is it? Where am I? Which way is up? Your nervous system loves that. It loves to feel the weight of your body when you walk or sit. It likes to use proprioception, feeling yourself in space and sometimes to help me feel myself in time, I remind myself what day is it? I say the date out loud to myself. <laughs> Just walking around the neighborhood, chatting away to myself. Well, not very much. Because when you're in a bad, dysregulated state, you don't know what time it is, do you? Time just starts flying away. It's a big blur. You're in no man's land. So there are all these good things to come back into present time, into your body and out of the, you know, torrent of thoughts and feelings that are just, just flooding you but they're now a memory, right? They're not a current danger. It's not a threat. So present time, safe. When I can, and this is number eight, I 
get back to work. And sometimes I can only do a, you know, some no-brainer tasks for a day or two. There's always a lot of no-brainer work for me to do. But after a couple days, I start getting anxious about not getting through the, you know, the real work, which for me is making videos. So it took me you know, at least four days of doing no-brainer stuff, you know, filing, making lists, copying lists onto some sort of digital thing. I didn't need to cry about it anymore, but I limited how much I talked about this thing that happened that, you know, I still, I'm still like really unhappy that it happened, but it's, you know, it's coming down. The level of upset is coming down. I just stopped talking about it. I ate good food. I made sure to get protein in every meal. That's very grounding. And my meditation, man, when I'm dysregulated like that, it gets pretty wobbly. It's hard for me to, you know, just even do the time. I'm sitting down, I'm looking at my watch, I'm fidgeting and everything, but I do it anyway. And I made sure to get a little exercise and, um, you know, keep going outside when I could. And when I started working on videos again, at first to help myself do it, I use a timer. So I set a timer for these 25 minute increments and I make myself just work on one thing at a time. So if I finish it inside the 25 minutes, I go right to the next thing. I just, I have a list of things I'm going to go through and I just, just do them one thing at a time for 25 minutes. Then I take a break, then I do it again. So that's a method called Pomodoros. You, if you're interested, you should Google that, Pomodoros. It's a lovely technique. Often if I am blocked and I just can't really get started on anything, one Pomodoro and I'm just like off, I'm, I can do, I can just keep working for hours. It's nice. So. But when you're doing it, no checking email, no phone notifications, no cups of tea. You just do one thing for 25 minutes. And I have like little post-its I put on my door to say I'm doing a Pomodoro. And so my family knows to kind of just let me be for a little bit and I'll come out and talk to everybody during my break. And focusing deeply on my work, it feels therapeutic to me. It helps me. Another thing I did after this upset, it had been like three days. I went to a 12-step meeting and I didn't speak there, but it was really good to sit with other people, especially after all the meetings, um, you know, for a couple years were only online. It was like, this is one of my first few like face-to-face -face meetings. And it was so nice. I was just like listening to people, hanging out, really paying attention and just really getting uplifted by them talking about their recovery. That's a really positive thing. And then I used a tool that happens to be very healing for me. I made a list. I like lists. I'm a list person. When I was ready, I thought through the you know, steps that I wanted to take to get a new vendor and close up the agreement with the former vendor. And at some point, um, I might apologize. I'm certainly willing to, to the vendor you know, who I had the blow up with. I don't know yet. So far right now, I'm not clear if I need to do that, and um, but I'm going to be open to it. I always, you know, I use my daily practice to surface. Like if I if I see what I need to apologize for, the minute I see it, I will do it. So I feel okay about how I'm interacting right now, and it has, you know, we're we're peacefully, you know, working through some completion, you know, of the project. So the blow up that happened, and this is kind of normal for me. It kicked up a lot of old hurts, and it's tempting when I'm in that hurt place to really dwell on a whole variety of bad things. I can just get very negative and sad and boring. And <laughs> one strategy that's underrated is just catching yourself when you can and just not going there. So I make myself, if I, if I notice, I just start going, oh yes, and then there was that time, you know, when everyone turned against me, my favorite old bad memory. <laughs> 
I have a few, you know, that I just gravitate to when I'm sort of in a low state, when I'm worn down, I'll just sort of gravitate to these unpleasant memories. They're not going on now. Everything that can be done has been done, but they're just kind of like a magnet for my negative thinking. So if I go there and I'm consciously working to try to get re-regulated and back in the saddle, if I catch myself thinking about those sad stories, I just make myself think about something else. And it's weird because I think there's kind of this zeitgeist where people go, oh, you should never do that. It's like, you totally should do that sometimes. There is a definitely a time and place to just like think about something else. And so I have kind of some happy memories that I like to think about. And I have a new one that I added to my collection. And it was when I was on vacation last month and my sons and I were swimming in the ocean together. And it's just like this really happy memory. We're swimming in the ocean. You know how when you're in salt water, it's really easy to float. And we were talking and floating. And I was, I just had this moment where I was like, gosh, I'm so grateful for these, these guys, you know, these kids. They're not kids. They're men. I'm just so grateful they came to be my babies. <laughs> just really grateful about it and um, proud of them. And, and I love them. And I always feel really at ease with them, like we really get along. So that's that's a, just a, a good feeling that I remind myself to visit. Why not? I sure have done that with negative memories. <laughs> so, so dwelling on the good memories is positive. So number nine, this is the last one. This is my secret power tool for feeling better. If you really want to have a good day, find something kind that you can do for somebody else. And then if you really want to double down on it, do something kind for people where they don't know that you did it. <laughs> if they find out, then in this game, you forfeit, you don't get any points. And if that happens, you have to find another secret good thing to do. And the reason I say this is because if there's any chance that you're going to be thought of as a good person, it's kind of tempting to do it for that reason. And it can pollute the benefits that you're going to get from just doing a kindness for someone. So the reason you're doing this, I mean, just to be honest with yourself, it's for your own happiness. And if it helps someone else, hooray, you just did something even better. So here are some ideas that you can do. Um, you can call somebody who you know is having a hard time. You can put your neighbor's empty trash cans back in their driveway after the trucks come or you can put some coins in someone's parking meter if it's expired. That's an easy thing to do. This was one of my favorite ones. I've done it, I've had it done for me by strangers. And ever since the pandemic, we don't have toll takers on the Golden Gate Bridge. But what people used to do here in San Francisco is um, strangers would occasionally just pay their own bridge toll and the toll for the person behind them. And so you'd get up there with your money out and they go, no, this person already paid it for you. So it's true, it's not anonymous. Anyway, now it's all done like digitally and with cameras and it's kind of like we have to find a new way to do a secret little good deed for people. So we're thinking about it. If you can't afford to pay somebody's bridge toll or parking meter, you can always give them a kind word. You can just say, you know, I really appreciate you. You can compliment them. Um, you can say something that's true and be real with them. And sometimes that makes you very vulnerable. But it's important that it's something they really deserve because that's also lifting you out of everything so terrible to, gosh, you know what, this person who is in my life or has crossed my path, like they're meritorious. I see it. They've done something good and I appreciate that. And it's always good for us to be exposed to other people's virtues. When we see them accomplish something, be a good person, it uplifts us naturally. So you can always just pay a compliment, you can acknowledge them and just give that to them as a gift. When you do that, you become an agent. You become more than yourself. You become an agent of good. 
you're working in the service of the good, which is really what you're made for. It's not just to like, you know, eat food, go to sleep, watch TV, keep thinking of something else to do. You're made to be in the service of good. <laughs> if nothing else, doing this, allowing this to be a big part of your life, it keeps you busy, keeps your mind off your problems. Everybody has problems, they never stop, but it's more than that. You're actually taking a little suffering out of the world and someone once made you suffer, but now, instead of passing suffering on, you're taking suffering off of somebody. You're reducing it for them, expecting nothing back. It's not manipulation, it's not codependent, and it's, it's not selfish. You're just shifting gears. You're changing how you see this and what's your role in the world. Getting out of suffering and into a cloud of kindness. And you turn around one day and you're gonna realize that now, you're having a good day. And that's how to turn a bad day into a good day. It might take some days, but it will work if you just keep putting one foot in front of the other. People who had a rough childhood often go through life feeling and knowing, really, that they're different than most people. And it's well known that early exposure to violence and addiction, abuse, neglect, they can have a lifelong effect on mental health and behavior. It's common sense, right? But until recently, researchers understood these effects to be mostly psychological or learned from dysfunctional parents. And while this is partly true, we now know the primary injury is neurological. Early trauma dysregulates the brain and nervous system, potentially triggering a whole range of problems from obesity to ADHD to heart disease to sex addiction. But for people with childhood PTSD, just being dysregulated is a problem that makes ordinary things in life ridiculously hard. Things like going on a date, spending time alone, expressing an opinion, or you know, just buying a jacket can set it off. So if you could see an MRI image of the brain in this dysregulated state, what you'd see in the front left cortex, it would go darker and dimmer and less active under stress hampering the ability to reason and pay attention. And you'd see the right front cortex just flaring, you know, whoo, which is a flood of emotions and activity there. Suppressed reasoning, overreactive emotions. This is familiar, right? This is what it feels like. It's not all in your mind, it turns out. It's in your brain. So there's this change of activity. Brain waves are irregular. Breathing and heart rate become ragged and out of sync and there might be numbness in your hands or your mouth or your face. And it can be hard to find words or to complete a task you're in the middle of or even to just pay attention. So personally, I get clumsy and I trip on the curb and drop things when I'm dysregulated. My handwriting changes, does yours? For a lot of us, we say things that we don't mean and we do things that we don't wanna do. Or we may grow silent and withdrawn or we may feel desperate and act impulsively or fly into a rage and lash out. So after an outburst like this, a trauma reaction, we might feel no emotion and we could behave coldly to the people we've just hurt. My friend once told me that when I get upset sometimes, I have a blank expression on my face and my voice goes flat. So it's impossible for other people to tell from the outside what I'm feeling, but it looks like I don't care. And I remember a teacher telling me once that my son in his preschool had been really naughty that day and 
when she told me that, I felt mortified and I kind of freaked out about it. And she said, I'm telling you this and you obviously don't care. And I finally have some insight about why she would say that, why people have ever thought so about me. I do care. And you might have this too. It's a very hard thing where people can't read you. But here's the thing. These reactions are not happening because I'm bad or you're bad or anybody's necessarily being bad or selfish or weak. I mean, you know, sometimes we are, right? But these reactions are happening or they're made worse because the brain is dysregulated. Nobody knew this before. Not doctors, not therapists, not preschool teachers. Nobody knew. But now we know. So one way that I've described the feeling of dysregulation to people who have never really experienced it is that it's like wearing a pair of headphones with like really loud music just blasting in your ears and you're, you're wearing somebody else's glasses that make everything blurry and you're wearing a giant pair of shoes a foot long for your feet and a mop is on your head and all the dirty strings are slapping you in the face and no one can see this and they think you're normal and, and you're trying to pretend that you are normal and that you feel fine and that you are in the conversation but actually you're frustrated, you're getting pulled out, you're disconnected, you're uncomfortable but you have to try to guess what a connected person would say in that situation. It's very anxiety provoking, right? You have to think about how to hold your face so it looks appropriate to whatever the other person is saying. Only you can't really hear what they're saying because the noise in your head is so loud and you have a mop on your head. <laughs> so dysregulation gets activated when we're confronted with stressors and crises. And remember, it can suppress your ability to reason while it amps up your emotions. So you see how this explains so much of why those of us with childhood PTSD appear to keep making the same bad choices over and over, even when we say we're never gonna do it again, and we mean we're never gonna do it again, but then you look down and there you are doing it again. So I'm here to tell you, you can break this cycle you really are capable of making good choices and good changes, but it would really help if you could learn to re-regulate. So how do you know when dysregulation is happening? Let's start with the regulated state and what that feels like. When you're calm, brain activity is even and it's driving body responses and emotions in an even and predictable way. But when strong emotions trigger dysregulation, your thinking changes. You can go into reactivity. You might withdraw, get silent, get confused, say things, freak out, or do something impulsive. And it's hard to perceive accurately what's going on in those moments. Like, you know, what just happened? What's the actual problem? Is it me? Is it the other person? What am I supposed to say? So in our dysregulated state, we might totally misread whether a person is safe or dangerous, and we can't tell whether our words and actions are appropriate to the situation. And sometimes we say things and do things that we later regret. So the trick to noticing dysregulation is to recognize the signs. And they might be a little different in different people, but here are some clues. One is you feel spaced out or at a loss for words and you can't remember where you are or you feel scattered and you're trying to do a lot of things at once, but you're not really finishing anything. Have you had that? Or you're tripping over things, dropping things, losing things, can't find your phone, your keys, your jacket, your purse, your voice and facial expressions are flat, or you're in a rage, or you feel a huge urgency to express what's bothering you, or you can't feel parts of your body, your hands, your mouth, your face, your nose, your feet,
Dysregulation often begins with an emotional flood. You get very upset or scared or something that's said or something happens, but sometimes the trigger is nothing you noticed. You can wake up dysregulated, in fact. So that's what it's like to be dysregulated. And I've put a quiz in the description section. It's on the free tools page. There's a quiz to find out if you're dysregulated, if you're showing the common symptoms. It's a self-assessment. Now, the most important question is, what can you do? So first you notice that you're dysregulated. And if you can do this, one thing, you can control your negative impulses and give yourself the time and space to re-regulate before you begin saying anything or doing anything that could be destructive. So if you're flooding with emotion, going numb, say to yourself, I'm getting dysregulated. All right, number two, be safe. This is not a good time to drive a car. Seriously, pull over and take your time. Don't go running into a crosswalk or try to use a table saw when you're dysregulated. Give all your focus to getting yourself into a physically safe place where you can pause. If you are threatened with violence, some of this won't apply. So just return all your focus in that case to getting yourself into a physically safe space, whatever it takes. All right, number four, if what triggered you was an argument. Instead of escalating the fight, you can use gentle words to stop the interaction, at least temporarily, like, I want to continue this conversation. I want to hear what you're saying, but I need to take a breather to calm down. Or you can say, if you don't want to tell the other person that you're triggered and just tell them you need a bathroom break. Or if you're on the phone, you can just say you have a call on the other line. Now, when you need to step back from a situation, you don't have to get into a big discussion about it because remember, talking about it can actually make dysregulation worse. So just find a way to put the conversation on pause. Number six is then to buy some time. Separate from the other person if you can. Go to a room by yourself, even if it's the bathroom. No one has to know what you're doing. If it feels urgent, take an even longer time before you try to resolve anything. Number seven is, and this is a quick technique, stamp your feet on the floor. You'd be amazed how helpful it is to bring yourself back into present time, into your body. And as you stamp each foot, say quietly to yourself, right, left, right, left. And this helps your brain begin to re-regulate. You can also take 10 deep breaths, focusing particularly on the out breath. So, like that. Another measure you can take that no one knows you're doing is you can press your tongue to the back of your teeth like like that number 10 is you can sit down and feel the weight of your butt in the chair and this is one more way to get back inside your body now remember inside your body out of your body it's a figure of speech of course you're in your body but you're not in full command of your faculties when you're dysregulated or dissociated all right number 11 Sometimes what you need is to eat something. And when you're stressed, you'll probably crave carbs and sugar, but it's protein foods that will help you get grounded again. So mix that into whatever you're eating, add it. Number 12, if you need some comfort, you can wash your hands and feel the water and soap on your hands. Warm water is beautifully calming. Number 13, if you have a trusty friend with you, you can get a good squeezing hug and it can really help re-regulate your brain. If no one's around, try pressing your back into a corner and then wrap your arms around yourself so you can feel pressure all around your torso. We're wired to calm down when we're hugged. And that's it. You now have a whole bunch of things that you can do when you notice you're dysregulated. And I've written them down in a downloadable PDF that you can access in the links below. 
I go deeper into the science of dysregulation in my course, Healing Childhood PTSD, also Dysregulation Bootcamp, two different courses. So I'll put those links down below too. Some people ask me, is medication helpful for treating dysregulation? And some researchers say yes, and some say no. But given that we now know that the underlying problem with a lot of childhood PTSD symptoms, it's not a chemical imbalance per se that's corrected by the introduction of chemicals. There's evidence that some medications can actually do more harm than good. And one of the reasons may be that they interfere with your natural ability to re-regulate after a period of dysregulation. So think about that. Everybody gets dysregulated sometimes and everybody eventually re-regulates. With CPTSD, we tend to get dysregulated more often for longer periods of time and it's harder to come back from. So the goal is to learn to re-regulate as soon as you notice it and then to stay regulated more of the time. So that's the first part of the solution. The second part, then with your nice, fresh, regulated mind is to work on the behaviors and circumstances that flowed out of you living your life dysregulated so much of the time. The childhood trauma happened and we definitely were affected by it, but this is the stuff that holds us back now. It's the dysregulation and the behaviors. So that's the essence of what I teach in my courses and coaching programs. Learn to re-regulate your brain and emotions. And I teach people how to do that. And two, acknowledge what happened to you and then put it over on the side so you can stop dwelling on it or identifying with it. And then move your focus to healing the life problems that are holding you back today. The habits, the behaviors, and the reactions that you have. Focus on right now what you're doing to make a happy life right now, to become your real self right now. Because it's time <laughs> and the past can't touch you now. It's time to be your real self, even if it's funky, because it's beautiful. You're a miracle. You are made to be something much more than someone who struggles. And if you can master re-regulation, you can then have all this space in your life and all this possibility. You can meet people and try things and quit things and make a positive difference in the world. That's where happiness comes from. These all become choices when you learn to re-regulate. You can go back to school. You can try your hand at a relationship. You can tell your story without flying out of your body and collapsing into a crying mess. You can choose what you want to spend time thinking about. It's really nice. Just when you think you've healed your old trauma and made all these positive changes in your life, getting back involved with your family can throw you for a giant loop. And it's happened to all of us. We try to connect with people we love and do something nice for them, but just being around family members, even the ones who have always been kind to us, can kind of touch off invisible triggers that fire up the old hurts again. You're not being difficult on purpose. It's that certain stimuli set off dysregulation in your nervous system and then it's like the genie's out of the bottle. You get prickly, maybe you get weepy, you get angry, you can't tell if people's comments that hurt you were meant to hurt you or you know if maybe you're just being too sensitive. But either you learn tools to sort of bring it back down or it can get to be all too much and a meltdown begins. The hurt emotions are too big to hide and you say things and everything gets weird. And no matter what you do, the shame just gets the better of you. I've been there. My letter today is from a woman I'll call Nia and she writes, Hi Anna, 
I just had a pretty bad issue with my family that for the life of me, I have no idea what to do. All right, I've got my pencil. I'm gonna circle things to come back to on a second reading, but I'm just gonna read Nia's letter and see what's going on and see if I can help. Okay, she says, super brief background on me. I was diagnosed with depression, generalized anxiety, and PTSD after feeling safe enough to share this information with a psychiatrist. I've been in and out of treatment since I was 13 years old. I'm 31. I was raised in a single parent household, absent father with two older siblings. My mom was violent, volatile, disrespectful, and seclusive. So I don't make a big deal out of voicing my opinion or wants or needs. Five years ago, I moved out on my own for my own well-being and cut off my entire family, as well as my only friend, the only one I knew from high school. We'd be here all day if I elaborated why I cut her off, she says. The only person I talked to was my aunt. This aunt has been pretty understanding of me for a few things. I'm different compared to my family, but she normally seems to be okay with it. My aunt had planned an event for a portion of the three-day weekend, and she invited me to come. It was on a Tuesday, and I just got a new job, so I couldn't. We'd already made plans to see The Little Mermaid live action, so she planned to stay for the entire week. Yay, we made, we made plans to hang out. One of these plans was a surprise for my niece. I paid for and planned for the three of us to visit an amusement park that my niece had never been to before. I wanted this trip to be a makeup trip for my niece since I couldn't join them during the week. My aunt lets a relative that I've never met know, and the relative asks, is it okay to if I come along? Uh, all right, I accept. And it's only her and her son, so I have no trouble with it. And then this relative invites more and more people because I said yes the first time. And this is family. I felt like I had to be as accommodating as possible. I think this started to trigger me because the, on the day of the event of the trip, the relative invites even more people. And I get a little mad. This took our group from just three to 11. Even though this relative did pay me back, I felt like I was being taken advantage of, but never voiced how I felt. My aunt didn't comment on it. We get to the park, and my niece is a little bummed. It wasn't as fun as it looked because we got there late and had to wait for the big kid rides. Me, on the other hand, I was starting to feel a butterfly in my stomach, so I felt like hyper-focused on her. She said she was bored, and I immediately tried to rack my brain for a solution to make her feel better. We got off the ride, and she's hungry, so I posed the idea to the group to get lunch and split up. No one answered me. I posited the idea again. No one answered me. I started to get even more anxious. Mm-hmm. I actually don't remember what happened to lead us to us splitting up. I know that I said the idea once more with a bit more bite. I know I probably had a lot more bite and I even got bossy. And my aunt turned to me and said, wait. She was talking with the relatives after coming from the bathroom. I had to have heard her because one minute she said that and the other we were splitting up. My memory is kind of fuzzy. I was at that point aware that I was overstimulated, there it is, <laughs> and upset, so I chose to go solo in the park. Ugh. My aunt comes, came up to me and, and she was a bit fluttery, and I didn't know how to explain, but she kind of had her hands up, waving around her face, and she was saying to me, you can't do that. I don't know, I tuned out everything else. I needed a moment. 
She then told me that my niece wanted to come with me, and I told her that I was just going to go solo. She then turned to my niece and said, Nia's going to ride some wild rides, so she's going to go off on her own. And it took a while for me to calm down, but when I did, I went through the park myself, but was still quite upset. And when we went home, I tried to talk to my aunt while I was still overstimulated and dysregulated, which was a bad idea. And predictably, I couldn't talk on the same level as I normally did when I was calm. I completely let my inner child take over. She kept her tone calm, but there were a few things that she said that had made me even angrier. She implied that the trip was for the family. It wasn't. That the relatives that were over would have never gotten the chance to meet up if not for this event. And then she asked me when she caught up to me what she should have asked. I couldn't give her a good response. And I was probably almost screaming at that point. It was not the right time for me to have this depth of a convo conversation. But what gave me pause was her saying that I was being, I was controlling when I said my plan, like I wanted them all to do what I wanted to do. And it wasn't my intention, but I know when I feel someone isn't listening to me, my suggestion can get firm. But I didn't think I was controlling. I guess my question to you is, how do I apologize? I feel like I don't really have a leg in this race. And I guess... I'm just trying to figure it out. I just, I don't know. I don't want to lose what little support I have right now. And my first instinct is to isolate and avoid her. I really want to be able to tackle this issue head on rather than just ignoring it altogether. Thanks for reading this. And that's from Nia. Okay, Nia, this is, I relate to what happened to you so much. And um, sometimes, you know, when I pick letters, I pick letters that I relate to and I know what to say. And this one is like tricky. This is just one of those things, like when you have an injured nervous system from growing up in a rough family, um, these things happen. And it gets better the more that you have practice self-regulating, returning from dysregulation, re-regulating. When you get good at it, part of that is you will learn to express yourself in the moment rather than after you're already upset. And I think a lot of this is like, it, it was just a difficult situation. There's just no way around it. People had a different idea about what the thing was than you, and you had done something nice and paid for them, and I totally get it. So first, you said I'm different compared to my family, but she's okay with it. And you didn't say what it was. I don't know what it is, like maybe you're gay or, I don't know. But your aunt accepts you. She accepts you. And so you trust her. And you wanted to do something nice for her and her daughter, so you bought, I mean, I, the live action show would have been expensive. Also the amusement park, that's a lot of money. So you put a lot into that. And um, so a little bit, like, you're asking me to help you identify how to apologize. So part of that is we probe and go, is there any part of this where you contributed? And so one thing is that a little bit possibly you were sort of saying that you were doing this for them, but a little bit, I don't know, if it were me, I'd be doing it a lot for me too. Like I would really like to go to the amusement park with family. I would really like to see a live show. Um, and a little bit it's couched as well. It's to do, it's to make up for I wasn't here this week. And so there, I'm just wondering like, is it possible it wasn't really convenient for them to do something just with you, just the three of you, that because the rest of the family was in town, there was a pressure on her to see other people. 
So when you're trying to prepare an apology, you think about where was the other person's, where were they, you know, what, where was their mind? And, and so if we just as assume that she felt pressure to include everybody, and then she got negative pressure from you for including everybody, like I've been in her shoes too for doing that, if, if that's what happened. So one of the things that you can prepare for your apology is an understanding that she, that she was in a difficult position and she didn't feel like she could um, say no to the family and that when you got upset that really you know put pressure on her put her in a difficult position so i know but i know you you know i know that's not fair to you but i think that might be what was what she was going through your aunt had invited you and then but then all these other people are coming and then more and those people invited people and so i'm wondering this is really between you and your aunt right it's really between you and her and maybe she didn't have control over whether those other people invited a bunch of people and i know how i feel like i've been everybody in this story i've been the person who got invited and didn't get it that it was originally intended as like a bonding experience for some very close relatives the ones you trust the ones you love the most and then these other people came who presumably you don't feel entirely safe with other family members so 11 and also just going to an amusement park with 11 people what a hassle everybody trying to meet up and eat at the same time and which rides you know what a hassle like the best way to go to an amusement park is like one adult and two kids or one adult and one kid <laughs> really because then kids have to do what the parent wants to do and you know there's not a lot of disagreement about that that's that's true for traveling too like I just 11 just sounds really hard and would lead to a lot of um, time standing there not making a decision or everybody taking so long to get their food and all that. So I would be overstimulated too. Oh, and by the way, <laughs> for those of us who get dysregulated, like amusement parks are really fun, but they're really overstimulating. They're so overstimulating. So we're shopping malls, street fairs, you know, just anything with like crowds of people and waiting and it's hot and you can't just get something. And uh, plus your senses are being like, woo, you know, on roller coasters and stuff. In a way, you know, I've always kind of liked roller coasters. I might be growing out of it, but I've always liked them. And I think that um, for somebody who gets dysregulated, like a big startle response, a big bunch of adrenaline can give you a reset. So it feels kind of good. It sort of brings you into yourself. So I don't know, I, but I'm just sort of like, I don't know, an amusement park, delicate family situation <laughs> sounds like a powder keg to me. <laughs> sounds like things are gonna get heavy. All right, um, and, and then it did. So you got a little bit mad and they paid you, but it wasn't the money. It was just this feeling like you had this unexpressed um, need and this unexpressed resentment about it. You know, I didn't see where you really said enough about it for them to be clear that they didn't really understand what was going on with you, but that this was really important to you. You wanted to be with the people you trusted the most. You didn't want to do something with everybody and you didn't feel you were in a position to say no. So when those other people came and your aunt said yes, then it's like you were in a position. So now everybody's been put in a position by these unwitting people who just thought this would be fun. And then they invite their friends and now really nobody can say anything and it just sucks. But you have this tendency that you want to, um, you kind of want to make it okay for everybody. And when the kid said she was bored, you're like, oh, I gotta, I gotta make her not bored. Like I totally know how that is too. And so 
this is what, you know, I hope I'm not projecting on you, but like a little bit of codependent stuff kicks up because of how you grew up. Like, oh no, somebody's unhappy. I got to fix it. I have to abandon my needs. I have to not speak up about my boundaries, my limits on here's what I want to do. I want to eat lunch now. Whoever wants to come, come with me, you know, <laughs> and everybody else go do what you're going to do. And we'll meet up at four o'clock, you know, something like that. But you lose all your power. Like it takes a lot of personal power to be able to speak up in a situation like that. There is so much pressure to just go with the flow, just go with whatever other people are dictating. And then you get resentful because you're like, who are they? Why are they more important than me? What about what I wanted? But as you heal more, you will get better, faster, and more graceful about speaking up about what works for you and doesn't work for you. And even when you realize like a little late, like, you know, this is getting kind of overstimulating for me. I'd like to do something quiet. And the point when your niece wanted to go with you and you didn't want to do it, I, I have been in your shoes before where part of it is I'm just so overstimulated. I just need to run away right now. But part of it is also, I don't know, like a pride thing. I can't back down. I just don't know how to get out of this tree I've climbed up to get away from the problem. And then so it becomes this very black and white thinking that's hurtful to people. Boy, have I been there. And it hurts them. And, you know, I just always want to explain to them. I was in a situation like that a couple years ago and it really hurt some people, but I needed to like leave a camping trip. And, <laughs> and instead of like dealing, it just actually, it wasn't safe to talk about the people who were making the whole thing unstable for me and frightening and weird. Um, you couldn't really tell them what it was. They were so volatile and yelling and stuff that it just wasn't safe. So I just left and called one person I trusted after I was already gone and said, I'm gone. <laughs> I know, right? It's a long story. I won't go into the details. I don't want to like implicate all the people in my life about it, but it was a really rough thing that really put a rupture in my friendship with the person who was um, really hard for me to deal with. And it's taken a couple years to, at least we're patching it up, but <sighs> sometimes Things just get too far to gracefully do anything about it. And I was freaking out. I was, you know, somebody was driving recklessly was what it was. And we were driving to this swimming hole in a desert on a dirt road. And I think I have a lot of like old stuff about that from my hippie parents driving on dirt roads and it wasn't safe and we got stranded. And I don't know, I don't, I don't really like blaming. Oh, I have trauma about that. That's why it was bad. They were driving really recklessly and it was dangerous and I didn't feel safe and I wanted to get out of the car. And I couldn't speak up about it gracefully. And so I didn't get out of the car until I was completely flipped out about it. And I irrationally said I was going to like walk back to the campground 11 miles in 100 degrees heat in flip flops, <laughs> which, yeah, no, you can't do that. And, and I was like, I don't know, going to hitchhike or something. I just had this very bad idea. And luckily, other people in the group just, you know, came and talked me down and drove me home. But it ended up like one bad thing after another, like that didn't get handled well. The next thing didn't get handled well. And soon I just had to leave. It just, it was such a bummer. So I just resonated so strongly with this and I get it about amusement parks. They're very dysregulating. So the part where you said, like you had to rack your brain and you couldn't find a solution and you couldn't think of the thing to say, it sounds to me, dear Nia, like you were dissociating. And sometimes people who have been with tra through trauma, like we have, when, when it hits the fan, it's more than dysregulation. It's like you can't really, like, you, you're, you're up and out. You're, you're, your brain isn't functioning. you got this blank spot in there. And that's when a lot of um, time can pass without speaking up. 
your, your perception of, of what's going on is not reliable and you know it. And so in a way, considering, I think you handled it really well. You did get out of there. You know, it sounds like you didn't, you heard yourself yelling and you removed yourself. And I'm sure that was uncomfortable for them, but you know what? This auntie loves you and accepts you. And so when you go to her and you let her know that you thought about this, here's the formula for how to do a really good apology. Now she knows you and she knows you've been through trauma and I bet she knows you get dysregulated sometimes. So you can say in a way where you don't in any way make excuses for yourself, a really good apology that works to heal a relationship. You just talk about how the other person might've been hurt and what, you, what your part in that was. And you don't try to discuss other things about it. If you're lucky, they will discuss those with you afterwards. They'll say, that's okay, I did this. So you would just say, Auntie, I'm so sorry. Um, I really got overwhelmed at the amusement park and I didn't treat you very well. And I'm embarrassed about how I acted and I really wanted to apologize. I wish I could have thought how to handle that better. I uh, was so looking forward to spending the day with, with you and, and your daughter and I love you guys and uh, I hope we can get together again and that you can give me another chance to have a good day with you. You don't have to blame the other people for coming. You know, you got in a little bit like, I got kind of overstimulated and I love you and I, um, I realize my behavior affected you and I'd like to see you again. If you really want to, you can say, I hope you can forgive me. But you don't get into long stories about, you know, how I was traumatized and I can't really take things. Like if she wants to talk about it with you and ask questions, maybe that's where the conversation will go. But you can really open a person's heart who's been hurt by you when you don't focus on those, those aspects of the story. They're always there, right? And you just focus on here's what I did and here's how I would feel if somebody did that to me. You can even say, you know, if you agree with me, like, you know, I'm really sorry. I think I put you in a position where you had other guests and it was awkward and I'm sorry I put you in that position. That's a nice thing to say. So if she's as good an aunt as you've experienced her to be, she might have sympathy for you or she might realize that's not what you wanted. And you can talk about that without guilt tripping her, without um, blaming her or blaming other people. And you don't have to beat up on yourself either, like keep it right-sized. You know, humility means you don't put yourself on a pedestal, but you, don't, you also don't put yourself, you know, groveling on the ground. And you're just like, I'm sorry, I got overwhelmed. And um, I put you in an awkward position, and I'm sorry about that. I, I, I realized that was hurtful, and I wish I could take it back. So just something like that. So that's how you can make an apology. And if you're like me, it's scary sometimes when you're about to do it. It's a very tender and humble act. It takes courage and it takes um, emotional honesty to do it. And I think part of the courageous part is, is the fear that, um, facing the fear that if you acknowledge your part, you're gonna give them more fuel for the fire to like blame you and attack you. But, if they did do that, I don't think it will, like seldom does that happen, but if they did, I've had it happen that way, you still come out stronger because you took care of your part in it. You took care of your side of the street. So if somebody goes, yeah, well, you know, you really did put me in a position and blah, 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 you can go, all right, well, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry about that. I hope we have another chance sometime out, out of the conversation before you start crying or wanting to go into the long story about it. Does that sound doable to you? I think it could help. So for anybody who struggles with getting overwhelmed and sensory overload and uh, can't express yourself because of 
uh, dissociation and dysregulation coming up. I use these techniques I call the daily practice. It's a very specific writing technique followed by a very simple meditation that can help bring you back to center in those moments. You can also do it, you know, I do it first thing in the morning and then later in the day, just as maintenance, just to kind of keep my brain strong, to keep my emotions in their lanes <laughs> where I need them, and um, to be able to communicate and express myself. Thank you so much for listening. If you love my content, think about joining my membership program. You can find out more information about that and all my courses and coaching programs at crappychildhoodfairy.com. Remember, healing is possible. People with childhood PTSD can have a wonderful life. Sometimes we just need a few workarounds. I'll see you next time.